Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Bradley. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. Over the past decade, uh, and particularly over the past few years, we've seen the issue of sexual abuse and abuse of people uh, in Parliament uh, hit the headlines uh, for various reasons. Brittany Higgins, uh, Grace Tame, and a range of other voices have emerged to essentially state that the situation is no longer tolerable, not that it ever was, and something needs to happen. And one of the voices that I'll be talking to today is former MP Kate Ellis. Kate had written a book um, looking at the culture in Parliament House. She spent what is for some people in lifetime, uh, almost 15, or oh, dead on 15 years in Parliament, and occupied various roles uh, while she was in there. Now, she's going to take us through some of her concerns articulated in her book and elsewhere, and also reflect on where she sees things heading now. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Sorry it took me so long to get around to sitting uh, down with you to have this chat, but I'm looking uh, it, it, Look, um, it, having to wait for, for things occasionally is, uh, is probably beneficial, but carry on. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> Good things come to those who wait, um, as they say in the classics. Now, that, before we get on to your personal experience, which, you know, as we said before, the decade, essentially a decade and a half of, of parliamentary experience, and also prior to Parliament, you, you did a fair bit of work in politics in South Australia, uh, which I've noticed. There was an acknowledgement last week in Parliament, which is a part of the, uh, I guess, the, the rite of passage that Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, said uh, the political establishment needed to go through in order to begin a process of setting certain things right for those who come after all of what's happened. What are your thoughts on what's occurred over the past week? I think my thoughts are a little bit mixed, to be honest, Tom. I think that um, I absolutely welcome Kate Jenkins' report and recommendations, and I think the acknowledgement of past behaviours and past hurt and trauma that have been caused is really important. So... Um, being positive, I think that that's a really important first step and I'm glad that's taken place. I, um, I am a little bit disappointed with the way that it happened. Um, you know, as we know, there are a number of very high profile survivors who weren't invited till the last minute, who weren't consulted with. And I, I think that's disappointing. It would have been great if this could have been a a real moment of coming together, acknowledging and moving forward. But let's hope that this is the first step and as the rest of the recommendations put forward by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner are put into place, that this is the beginning of seeing real change. And that's what I've argued needs to happen, as have many others. So hopefully that change is now underway. Let me, let's pick up on that point you've just raised because there's something interesting in in the observation you make um 
I think it was Ali Stegall that managed to get people back, people mm. in into the gallery on uh, on that particular day to watch the acknowledgements take place. Uh, how important is it to allow people who've been through um, psychological or physical abuse to take some ownership in in what in a process that, if I can use the term slightly loosely, but in a process that is supposed to heal a structure? Mm. Um, I, I think it's really important. I think that, um, you know, statements of acknowledgement in our national parliament can be um, incredibly powerful. Um, you know, that is the place where we can signify um, both acknowledgement and change going forward. So, I, I mean, I don't want to be too negative about it, but, I mean, my example was I was not only so concerned with the culture um, of how women are treated in Parliament House that I didn't just raise it. I wrote a book about it. Um, I didn't know that this acknowledgement was going to take place. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of us that found out about this um, just through regular news reporting, where I think that's a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, I think it would have been nice if people had been consulted, if people had been included in a way that was more meaningful than what actually took place. But again, I think this also signifies that this is about change, this is about the future, and this is about standing up and publicly saying what had happened previously was wrong, and that the parliament acknowledges that and will take efforts to change it. And if that happens, then, you know, I think we'll all be delighted. That's what everybody has fought for, um, advocated for. So, you know, let's look to the future and hope that it's going to be a much better place and a better environment and a better workplace. And most importantly, a better example for the rest of the country than it has been in the past. Now let's jump into my podcast version of the DeLorean and go back to the future, yeah. um, to coin a phrase. Uh, you began a career in, in politics as an advisor prior to being you know, pre-selected to run in the city of Adelaide. Um, how did you come to get into that, the political space first? Um, largely accidentally, I think, is the answer to that. I, I certainly wasn't the, um, you know, the youngster with Bob Hawke and Paul Keating posters on my wall, you know, stating to everybody that I wanted to grow up and be Prime Minister or a Member of Parliament. Um, Unlike I, some others. <laughs> yes. Um, not that there is anything wrong with that. It's good if people know what they want and go for it. Um, in my case, it was more, I, I think I realised... Um, through a series of my own life of events, um, how important um, a quality public health system was and how I had a firm belief that we needed to ensure that that remained in place. I've, my mum's a school teacher, was a school teacher my whole life, so my belief in the power of education to change people's lives and give greater opportunities was really strong. And um, just through events that um, took place, I started to stand up and 
um, and advocate for those for those two things in particular, um, which I guess led me towards opening my eyes more broadly and seeing other issues and led me to thinking that I thought that was a pretty worthy way to spend my time was fighting to try and protect those things that I held so dear. What was your experience going through pre-selection back in uh, the lead up to 2004? Well, I think that one, um, I was incredibly lucky. I was incredibly lucky to be given an opportunity um, to run for a winnable seat um, at, uh, at a young age. I was 26 um, when I was first pre-selected, which yep. was really young in comparison to the experiences of most. Um, but I guess my experience was that that surprised a lot of people. So I had um, a focus on my age from the beginning and um, and I think probably was treated differently in both a good and a bad way because of that. Um, it was made very clear to me from the outset um, that I didn't fit the mould of what people saw a politician normally looks like. Oh, Okay. Um, that was both from the media, but even from people on my own side of politics. I remember the first time I was introduced to someone as um, Kate's going to be our candidate for Adelaide, the response was, what, in 20 years' time? Um, so I, I was, I guess from the outset, um, I felt like I had to work harder to prove myself. And that's not a bad thing. Um, that's good. Um, I don't mind people underestimating you. Um, it, it gives you a challenge. So um, I, I think from the very beginning, there was definitely a focus on um, not necessarily my views, my policies, um, my skills, but there was a real focus on my age, my gender and my appearance um, from day one. Okay, so that that you became aware of all of that stuff very early on, mm. right? Take me through what then happens when you win Adelaide. Yes, you get into the parliament, and you're in a different world, mm. which is sort of party room, it's broader parliamentary climate, it's media and intense media observation. What happens when you go from candidate Kate mm. um, experiencing some of that uh, some of that sort of ageist, sexist discrimination, being blunt about it mm. and walking through the door into parliament when, when did it start to get worse? Uh, I think it was there from the beginning. Um, you know, it was, I experienced regularly uh, security telling me, stopping me going through the member's entrance to get into Parliament House and saying, oh, no, no, the staff go in over there or um, com car drivers, um, you know, we're entitled to cars and drivers when we're in Canberra and I'd get in the car and they'd sit and wait and say, when's your boss coming? Um, so there was the assumption was there from the beginning. Um, it was constantly reinforced that I was other, I was different. And, um, and I was. So 
Um, and I'm certainly not the first person to have gone through that. The other thing that I had is as a South Australian, I'd seen Natasha Stott Despoia go through this just a few years earlier. And so... Um, you South Australians stick together, do you? Well, unless we're talking about football, then that's often a, a different matter. Um, where okay, so there are disagreements. That's there right. are very, very staunch disagreements um, on those matters. But um, no, I do think that, you know, South Australian, we have a really proud history of um, being leaders when it comes to supporting women's rights in parliament and in having a number of firsts when it comes to um, electing women into parliament. So there is a bit of a history there. Um, but I guess your question, you know, when did it start? It was always there. And so I think that's one of the reasons you just become acclimatised to, to this, that that's the culture that exists, that's the treatment that you get from day one, which I think, and not wanting to jump forward too far, but I think that's why it wasn't until I left Parliament that I had a chance to step back and say, oh, actually, that's not okay, that's not normal, that's not how other workplaces operate, because you do just become so used to that culture um, that it just becomes the norm. Um, having, I've already sort of spoken about some aspects of the Parliament House culture with, uh, with Amy Ramikis, who's obviously written on Reckoning, and, and we covered the topic of the sort of the Whispers Network in the press gallery about how they managed mm. uh, in relation to dealing with um, uh, colourful characters, if I can put it that way. Uh, as a female parliamentarian, were there, was there a similar kind of um, uh, way in which you communicate with with other women in the place to sort of say, well, look, there are there are there are people you need to you need to have uh, meetings with in the presence of another. Um, I, I don't think so to that extent. And one of the things that changed the most in the 15 years I was in Parliament was the number of women who were there. We saw a really big increase over that time. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that that kind of support, advice, discussion happens much more now than it did in the, what, 18 years ago when I was first elected. Um, that... We certainly did find, and every woman that I spoke to from across the political spectrum um, in researching my book had a story to tell about how they were treated differently. And no one is trying to say that politics isn't or shouldn't be a tough game, but there were different ways that women were undermined. And certainly one of those was the backgrounding, the gossip, the spreading rumours um, to undermine someone's reputation happened in a much more sexualized way when it came to women than when it came to men. Um, and the other thing, just because you were talking about speaking with Amy recently, who I think is amazing, um, I think she's wonderful. The other thing that's changed is we've now got these amazing, strong, professional, respected women across the gallery and across the media. Um, and I think that's been a big change. You know, there was, um, there's always been some remarkable women there, but I think that they have um, a lot more support and a lot more encouragement um, to be able to 
operate differently and focus differently. What's the worst? I guess what's the worst of the sort of examples of discrimination that you came across? Oh, I found that um, to me it was a pretty constant thing to have rumours spread about my alleged sex life um, and that happened all the time. I mean, I told the story about how it was one of my first weeks in Canberra when I had um, a Liberal staff member who went on to become an MP approach me. He'd been standing around talking with a group of his mates um, who then approached me I won't use his language, but to say, Kate, we've been talking, the only thing anyone really wants to know about you is how many people you had to sleep with to get into parliament. Um, so that was at the beginning, but throughout my career, there were constant allegations that I was, um, well, that I had this incredibly active sex life with other members of parliament, staff members, journalists, um, key stakeholders, and, um, and it got to the point where those rumours um, threatened to make it into the mainstream media. Um, there were going to be stories written about this and it was all completely fabricated. So um, th that is something I dealt with constantly that I don't think there are any or many um, male politicians who have to deal with that as well. And that does have an effect. After my book came out, I had a number of senior journalists who contacted me and apologised and said, I heard those rumours so frequently that I just believed that there had to be some truth to it. And it probably um, affected the way that I judged you. You know, I was judged as someone who wasn't serious, who wasn't focused on the job, who was this party girl more interested in, um, you know, my tally of men than, than being a serious um, contributor to public policy. Um, so that has an impact um, and we'll never know the effects of that impact, but these are all things that happen and happened um, regularly to, to the women in the parliament um, much, much more so than the men. You've raised an interesting issue, which I wanted to get to, um, but it's a convenient segue to do it now. Yep. Um, the media plays a part in communicating what goes on in a democracy, whether it be about individual politicians, policies, directions. We're seeing it now with uh, issues on national security, which is separate to what we're talking about today, but we're seeing a lot of that happen. Um, how... What role do you think the media has played in the way in which female politicians have been characterised over your time uh, in, in, in being aware of politics? I think the media has played a huge role um, in the different focuses that they've had when it comes to male or female politicians or indeed prime ministers in, you know, whether they run articles about women's appearance as opposed to their policy contributions. Um, but I think also, you know, we need to realise that 
the, the media and the, the Canberra Press Gallery are not some innocent bystanders. They're active players in this whole game of politics that takes place. And what's happened in the past is that the politicians who behave the worst, those who spread rumours, those who background, those who leak against their own colleagues, are rewarded by the media because... Um, you know, journalists love that. It gives them stories to write. It gives them insights. They don't want to burn those bridges. So, you know, you'll often find that the people who are behaving the worst are the people who are being written up as rising stars and um, and the like by those journalists who want to keep that feed going. So it, I think it can be quite an unhealthy relationship. Um, and I think that unless there is a recognition that we want Australian politics to be better, then um, politicians behaving badly aren't going to stop and the media that rewards them aren't going to stop. I think we need to recognise that everybody plays a part in that and change won't happen unless it happens across the board. You've seen, you've seen the media up close and you've seen it, I guess, more, um, more from a distance since you left Parliament. What are the things that need to happen to improve media performance in this area? Well, I think some of it is an awareness of what happens. You know, one of the things that um, I guess I was most pleased about after my book came out, I had a journalist who approached me and said that they had changed the way that they operated as a result of hearing some of my stories. And they went on to say that they'd heard this terrible rumour about um, a current politician and um, which would have been a big story would have been very harmful to that individual mm-hmm. and instead of just believing that rumor they decided to go directly um, to the person involved and put it to them and they found out the whole thing was rubbish and they also learned that the person who had been feeding them that story they now knew was not trustworthy and was somebody who was peddling in gossip and background, trying to undermine their colleagues as opposed to them being a serious player. So I think that, you know, if journalists become aware that there is a different way, you don't have to just believe everything you're fed, you can actually go and check these things out. I really wish somebody had done that to me at the time, because normally when you're um, the person at the centre of these allegations, you're actually the last one to hear about them. So I think little. So, so what, what you're that, telling me, what you're telling me, you know, sorry for breaking yeah. in, Kate, but what you're telling me is that there are people who who, who, are, who exist in the press gallery who are not doing journalism. Well, I think that sometimes it's really hard to go to someone and say, "I've heard, you know, for example, that you were caught having sex in the parliamentary prayer room." You know, that's a hard conversation to have with somebody, and particularly if it's somebody you don't really know. And so more likely than not, the journalist who's been fed that rumour will just take it on board and move on and maybe tell a few other people and it spreads and spreads. But I think if journalists start to actually um, check whether these things that they're being fed are true or not, then that will lead to change and it will it will um, take away the incentive for people to do this to other people. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not claiming to be, you know, completely pure and innocent, but I do think that politics 
people should be based on how good they are at their job, you know, how good they are at representing their community, at developing good policies, at communicating those policies, um, not on the range of things, additional hurdles, which have been placed in front of too many members of parliament for too long. Do journalists get too close to um, the politicians they report? I'm thinking about the, the environment in Parliament. Hmm. Um, do they get too close to the the, 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 the sources of the stories? And, and, yeah. and is, the, is the danger here people not being able to sit back and evaluate what they're hearing, what they're hearing, and what they're seeing, um, properly because of what uh, people in the accounting world call a kind of a familiarity threat. They're too close to the the source. I, I have no doubt that that occurs. I mean, journalists rely upon those sources to get their exclusives, to get access to their leaked information, um, to get ahead of their competitors, and they need to protect those relationships and. Um, that comes at a cost, impartiality sometimes. It's interesting. It's interesting that we reflect on that because there are other examples as well that we've observed, um, including, I mean, not, not, I guess it's not for us to reflect on it in this conversation, including the sort of things that, uh, that confronted uh, Emma Hussa, for example, hmm. um, which will be in another podcast for those listening. Fast track, fast tracking, obviously, to your book, which we've touched on, and the discussions afterwards. How heartened are you about the way in which things are proceeding? Is there, is there hope for, for genuine change at the moment? Uh, I have an abundance of hope. I am hugely optimistic about um, not just the fact that change is possible. Um, but that change will occur and that I think change will occur pretty quickly. And I base that optimism on the fact that just two years ago, I mean, when I was writing this book, I was really worried that it would be controversial to suggest that there was a cultural problem within Parliament House when it came to women. That was two years ago. I thought, I thought am I saying something that people are going to think I'm ungrateful? Um, you know, are people going to think that I'm whatever? Um, but of course, in the time since then, you know, mm. we've had the extraordinary courage of Brittany Higgins come forward and tell her story so publicly um, in front of the nation. Um, we've had we've had a number of others. We've had so many brave people tell their stories to Kate Jenkins, who. You know, the statistics that she outlined after doing an inquiry into the culture of the, um, the federal parliament are extraordinary. There is now no question um, that there is a cultural problem in Parliament House, particularly when it comes to women. Um, nobody disputes that, I don't think, on any side of politics that change is required. Um, and that is a really big shift in a small amount of time. Um, the fact that we now have a roadmap to that change um, through the recommendations in that report means that th this is going to improve. This has been called out. People have agreed um, 
it's not okay and it's going to get better. And I think that that's wonderful and, you know, very overdue, but a very positive thing. And a positive thing, you know, I think it's important to put forward, it's a positive thing, not just for the people that work in that building. This is actually about um, people right across Australia, right across all professions. Um, if the culture of Parliament House, if the culture of the place where they are setting the rules for the rest of the country, for every workplace, um, is so toxic, why would anyone have any faith that any of the issues in their workplace are going to be addressed by them? And Parliament needs to be better than the rest of Australia, not lagging decades behind it. So I think this is a really exciting um, and important time for all workplaces um, because change will come from the top. There's something worth expanding on in what you've just said. Now, oftentimes we observe Parliament, um, as we have recently and in question time, is um, leaves much to be desired. Uh, you've been in the building, you, you've also sat and sat outside and looked at it. Um, in terms of establishing go a gold standard in behaviour, mm. out, just outside of the Jenkins report, mm. what does the parliament have to do to um, have people out there in the community um, trust the performance of politicians and trust government? I think um, a major reform of the way question time works would have to be a part of that. And, um, you know, question time is that one hour of the day that normally gets all of the media attention um, and it is um, set up to display the worst of behaviour. If you can humiliate someone on the other side, you're seen as winning question time. If you can um, get some criticism, get some insult onto the record, then that's considered a win. Um, I think all of the worst things about Parliament can be seen in that one hour of, a day, of the day. And I don't think it helps anyone um, to carry on with question time the way it's currently structured. Um, I think it turns the public off. I think it turns a, a number of people off potentially entering politics and parliamentary life. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think it is a really negative um, part of our political system. And, you know, the, the, the thing about question time is that bad behaviour is rewarded. Um, I, I remember when I was very early on in my career sitting in question time, and on this particular occasion, it was Peter Costello who stood up and was mocking someone on the other side. I think he was doing some sort of robot dance or I can't remember the details of it, but I remember sitting there thinking, this is appalling behaviour. You know, this is the treasurer of the country acting like the class clown in a primary school. And, of course, when I saw the news services that night, you know, that was the grab of of question time that ran on every news service. So he didn't just get to humiliate his opponent in front of the people that were in 
the building that day. He got to do it on every television screen across Australia that night. And so, of course, the next day someone will go, what can I do that's more outrageous and more newsworthy so that I can get the grab of the day? And it, it is this downward spiral in standards and behaviour. Um, and how does any ordinary Australian benefit from that? I can't think of a single reason. So I think that, you know, the Jenkins um, recommendations are really important in addressing the culture. Um, but beyond that, I think we have to have a serious look at modernising the way politics works and the way parliament works so that everyday Australians can have a bit of a higher opinion of their members of parliament and have a bit more pride in the way people are going about doing their work. You know, isn't it ridiculous that the people that sit there and insult each other for an hour each day are the people that are meant to be telling us what are appropriate standards of behaviour in the workplace? Um, you know, that bullying isn't okay, that harassment isn't okay. That is what sits at the core of question time at the moment. And I think it's, I think it's a cancer on our parliament. Would you enter public life again? Uh, I, I, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I certainly have my moments where I think I miss it. Um, there are so many good things. I mean, I know I've just spoken about all the negatives, but, you know, I am so incredibly grateful for the privilege of getting to represent my community and get to represent my country and hold a, hold a federal portfolio. Um, that is a wonderful opportunity. And so it's not something that works for me and my life and my family at the moment, but you never say never. Um, who knows what the future holds? Kate Ellis, the former, former MP um, and the author of Sex, Lies and Question Time, which examines the uh, decadent culture, if I can say that, of our parliamentary system and one that... Uh, she and others hope that uh, will be changed by the recent um, outrage and also the Jenkins report released late last year. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.